Galatians chapter 2. Our focus this morning will be on verses 17 through 21. I'll be reading chapter 2, 11 through 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Well, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, Grant our hearts to be so settled in the gospel that we don't fear accusations that might at first sound reasonable against it. May we be so faithful that accusations would come. Grant clear thinking that we might see those accusations, even those that might sound pious and zealous, that we would see why they are unfounded this morning. 
In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. In chapters 1 through 2 of Galatians, Paul has defended his apostleship and the gospel again and again. When we come to the end of this line of reasoning this morning, he's been defending it against those troublers of the churches of Galatia who are perverting the gospel of Christ that Paul preaches. Paul began with a powerful one-two punch followed by a vicious uppercut. First came the left jab of 1, 10 through 24 where Paul demonstrated that his gospel came neither from men nor through men, but through Christ Jesus. And this is followed by the strong right cross of 2, 1 through 10, where he shows the unity of the apostolic gospel that whenever he finally did go to Jerusalem some 14 years later, they added nothing to him. And then third is, is the vicious uppercut of 2, 11 through 16, where Paul demonstrates that his apostolic authority stands even over another apostle should their conduct be contrary to the gospel. And so this morning we're looking at the conclusion of Paul's rebuke of Peter for that contrary behavior, or at least what is the conclusion of his argument related to that rebuke. It's, it's hard to tell, it's impossible to know where any recap of his rebuke of Peter ends and where further meditation begins because the original has no quotation mark. But nonetheless, this is all related to the same instance. 11 through 21 are tied together as a single argument. But there is a transition that's happening here. It's a transition from biographical narrative to tightly reasoned prose. The focus and the subject remain the same, but we've gone from life to logic. So, Paul has demonstrated then, at this point, that Peter's behavior is contrary to the very heart of the gospel, justification by faith alone and Christ alone. Verse 14 through 16. But when I saw that their conduct, Peter along with Barnabas and the other Jews who are led astray by their hypocrisy, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so this perceived opponent is being dealt with here. It's not simply Peter, but it's the false teachers of Galatia who are standing in place with Peter and want to carry all his things that are contrary to the gospel out in their theological implications. He, he's dealing with that person as well here whenever he says, if we are to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? The objection that's being raised here is not one that Peter holds himself. It's the implications of it that are being dealt with. And it, these implications are held 
by those who are troubling the Galatian churches. So, this perceived opponent, having been pummeled in this rebuke that we have in verses 15 through 16, then throws a foul backhanded punch in this objection, this this perceived objection of making Christ a servant of sin in this doctrine. You see, human hubris, pride, hates the gospel. Pride will always object to the gospel because the gospel says we're all, verse 17, sinners. Now to understand this, you have to go back to verse 15. Whenever Paul says, we, myself, Peter, these Jews who are led astray in this, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And the idea is that they've been shown grace. They've enjoyed immense privileges. They've not been left in the dark as the Gentiles were. But even so, they're found to be right alongside of the Gentiles, sinners. They're not sinners like the Gentiles were, but they are sinners because their only hope is Christ. The only way they have to stand just before the Holy God of Heaven is the same way that the Gentiles do. Not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. And so this backhanded punch has come then that this makes Christ a servant of sin. And Paul counters strongly. Despite all privileges that they've enjoyed, Christ is their only hope. And so to this, the objection is one of pride dressed up as piety. One of hubris dressed up as holiness. This makes Christ a servant of sin. What is, what is the implication here? What are they insinuating? I think it's basically the same one that we see put forward in Romans chapter 6. Paul masterfully shows through Romans 1 and the first half of Romans 3 that all Jew and Gentile alike are sinners. And then he presents the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone through the remainder of chapter 3 into chapter 5. And it comes to this point in chapter 6. After having presented them, he asks, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer there is just as crisp and clear as it is here. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you see the parallels? What does it mean to make Christ a servant of sin? It's this very thought. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer is the same in both instances. No. We died. And we've risen anew. See, Paul is dealing with the accusation of antinomianism. An accusation of antinomianism. 
antinomianism, anti-nomos, law against the law, anti-law. He's dealing with the accusation of antinomianism from legalist. Now, antinomianism, there is a true heresy of antinomianism that wants to throw off any kind of law whatsoever. That's not what is happening here. These legalists, these Judaizers, are slandering the gospel itself as antinomian. They are saying that the gospel doctrine of freedom is one of frivolousness. That the gospel doctrine of liberty is one of license. That because it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that if that's what you believe, you can live however you want. In his exposition of Romans chapter 6, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the true preaching of the gospel by grace alone always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against it. There's no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. That is a very good test of gospel preaching. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel does not expose it to that misunderstanding, then it is not the gospel. The legalist, the Judaizer, will always slander the gospel as license. And Paul's counter to this false accusation isn't so much another jab as it is a bit of judo. He flips the attack back on the accuser. Verse 18, it's actually the Judaizers who transgress the law. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What is it that Paul tore down? Verse 19, I believe it's that which he died to. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to Christ. Now, let's be clear that Paul isn't saying he's tearing down the law altogether. It's not the law that died, it's Paul who died. He died to the law. What he's speaking of here, of dying to, is an effort at self-justification through works of the law. Verse 16 explains this. We know that a person is just not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So if Paul tries to rebuild what he's torn down, this effort at self-justification through works of the law, if he tries to rebuild his former way of life that he spoke of in 1, 13 through 14, this way of life where he was, it was a life in Judaism. It was a life where he says he was advancing beyond all his peers. If he tries to rebuild that life, 
then he's a transgressor of the law. How's that? Well, we'll work out a more precise answer, but let's look at the more general answer that develops in the letter. He would be a transgressor of the law if he tried to stand just by the law before God because the law was never given for that reason. And the law itself makes that clear. In 3.11 he writes, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. How is it evident? What proof is Paul offering here? He quotes the Old Testament. Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. In 3.19, he asks, why then was the law? And he answers, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture, whenever Paul says Scripture there, he has in mind primarily the Old Testament, of which a large portion would be technically referred to as the law. So the Scripture, the law, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law is not contrary to the promises. The promise isn't contrary to the law. It's just this, that the law was never intended to give life. And the gospel does. In chapter 4, he asked, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? But the law not only shows us the impossibility of standing before God upon the basis of our own works, it not only shows us our sinfulness, it testifies to Christ. Remember in Romans 3, Paul says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see that Paul makes these Judaizers look as ridiculous as those Pharisees who came to Christ and accused Him of breaking the law. They accused the one who was the fulfillment of its every jot and tittle. The one who kept it fulfilling all righteousness in our place. They accuse him of breaking the law. And likewise, Paul is flipping this argument back around on the Judaizers saying, it's actually you who are transgressing the law. You see, if I were to rebuild what I tore down, it's then that I would be transgressing the law. But more precisely as to why that is, why it, it is that if he would try to rebuild, that he would then be transgressing? He explains, verse 19, 4. 
because through the law, I died to the law. How is it that Paul died to the law? Verse 20 tells you, I've been crucified with Christ. Paul died to the law when he died with Christ. You begin to see how this is so in in 3.13 whenever we read that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Later he'll tell us in 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son born under born of woman, born under the law. So Christ was born under the law as the second Adam so that He might fulfill all righteousness for us and suffer for all of our law-breaking. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul explains that God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's the law and the curses it calls for upon those who violate it. God canceled it, setting it aside, nailing it to the cross. What was owed on our part under the law was paid by the one who stood in our stead. And His death liberates us as it's counted as our own. So Paul argues in Romans 7, Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies... She's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. How is it that one dies to the law with its legal demands standing over us such that the curse and wrath of God are due upon our soul? How is it that one gets out from under that? The wages of sin is death. You have to die. You've died to the law through the body of Christ. It's clear, he's saying, the broken, bloody, buried body of Christ. So that you may belong to another. To Him who has been raised from the dead. In order that we may bear fruit for God. So that just brings you naturally to the second part of Paul's answer. Why, if he tried to rebuild what he tore down, he would be a transgressor? Because the law itself, he's dead to it. And he's dead to it in Christ 
so that he might live unto God. He died to the law so that he could live unto God, or the way it was put in Romans. That having died through the body of Christ, you've been raised in order that you may bear fruit for God. You might live unto God. So here's the paradox. If you don't die to the law as a means of self-justification, all of your law-keeping is law-breaking. Every effort towards please God in and of yourself is displeasing to Him. The law itself tells you this. One cannot live unto God, loving Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength unless they die to the law. So oddly, to be under the law is to be under sin. Under the curse. Not because of any deficiencies in the law, but because of deficiencies within ourselves. So it's only in Christ that we're set free. Not only from the condemnation of the law, but from the grip of sin so that we might live unto God. See, Paul died to the law because he was united with Christ in Christ's death and resurrection. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And here we have the doctrine of union with Christ. This is the doctrine of soteriology. Soteriology is the study of the doctrine of salvation. This is the doctrine of salvation. Every other doctrine, every other truth about our salvation is connected to this central hub of union with Christ. So be it regeneration, election, adoption, sanctification, glorification, every other truth, every other benefit, everything that you have in your salvation is found in Christ. So this doctrine is central to salvation because Christ is all of our salvation. There's nothing outside of Him. Everything you enjoy in your salvation, you enjoy in Christ. Most of the time when we encounter this truth in Scripture, it's with those words, in Christ. But... It's not uncommon, it, it's not as frequent, but it's not uncommon for the Scripture to tell us not only are we in Christ, but Christ is in us. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You're in such union with Christ that you're not only in Him, but He in you. John Murray states, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. All to which the people of God have been predestined in the eternal election of God. All that has been secured and procured for them by the once for all accomplishment of redemption. All of which they become actual partakers in the application of redemption. And all that by God's grace will become, the state, will, will, will become in the state of 
of consummated bliss is embraced within the compass of union and communion with Christ. The Father elected us in Christ, chose us in Christ. The Son acts as our federal head, our representative head, living that perfect life of of righteousness, fulfilling all righteousness, he tells John. Not because he lacked it, but because we did, and he's acting in our place. And he goes to the cross to suffer, not for his misdoing, but for ours. But what we're seeing here is not union with Christ as it relates to the Father's decision in eternity past, or the Son's representational union with us in His life and death and resurrection and ascension and session and for all eternity. But what Paul is dealing with here is the Spirit's application of everything that is in Christ to us in time. He's talking about our experiential union, what we call mystical or spiritual or living union with Christ. About living because of this union with Christ. Listen to the way Paul unfolds these things for the Corinthians. The love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. In Christ, we've died. And we've risen. And we now live, not unto ourselves, but unto God. We were once dead in our sins. Under the law and its curse. But because Christ lived, died, and rose in our place, as the Spirit applies this, we enter into the experience of that. And this is our reality. Ephesians 2. You who were dead and the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You were dead, but God, being rich, In mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us 
with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Christ. All of this happens in Christ. So Paul and all the saints likewise live unto God by faith in Christ. Those who try to live by the law remain dead. Those who die to the law in the death of Christ rise to live unto God. It's not the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone that leads to deadness of works. It is the false doctrine of justification by works that leads to deadness and transgression. Duke George of Saxony, who opposed the Reformation, said of the doctrine of justification as Luther was preaching it, it's a great doctrine to die by, but a lousy one to live with. That is the antinomian objection to the gospel. That kind of preaching will lead to men thinking they can live however they want. And so they create a doctrine, a system of doctrine that bound people in fear. Contrary to Duke George, the Apostle Paul tells us, that not only are we justified by faith in Christ, but it's only by faith in Christ that we can live unto God. Calvin wrote, I wish the reader to understand that as often as we mention faith alone in this question, we're not thinking of a dead faith, which worketh not by love, but holding faith to be the only cause of justification. It is therefore faith alone which justifies And yet, the faith which justifies is not alone. Just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone, because it is constantly conjoined with light. Wherefore, we do not separate the whole grace of regeneration from faith, but claim the power and faculty of justifying entirely for faith as we ought. We are justified by faith alone, but that faith which justifies is not alone because the faith which justifies proceeds from a new heart. Which happens because the Spirit puts us into living union with the crucified and risen Christ. Trust in Christ does not mean sinfully living unto self. Trust in Christ means living holy lives unto the Christ who is all of our salvation. See, the life of those who died, who have died and risen with Christ is one of gratitude. You see it in the way Paul speaks. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Living by the law means approaching God with demands. It's an arrogant, blasphemous, deadly way 
to approach the holy God of heaven. Living by faith in Christ clings to the unmerited favor and mercy of God. Comes not with demands, but with gratitude. Not with demands for what I've done, but with gratitude for what God has done in Christ. This life of faith is a life that's dependent upon the rich bounty of God in Christ. And so just as faith justifies because that faith lays hold of Christ who is our righteousness, Paul is saying that very faith clings to Christ who is also our life, our sanctification. John Piper defines faith as the act of our soul that turns away from our own insufficiency to the free and all-sufficient resources of God. Faith focuses on the freedom of God to dispense grace to the unworthy. It banks on the bounty of God. So do you see that the contrast between this false gospel and the true gospel is not one as the perceived opponent tries to make it. It's not one of a contrast between obedience and disobedience. That's how they want to make it out to be. The contrast Paul has made clear now is one between self-reliant works and God-reliant faith. And to live by faith is to live by God's grace promised in the Christ that faith clings to. And that grace would be rendered void and that Christ cling to would be rendered insufficient should we try to live by the law. And thus, you would be a transgressor. This is the final slam of Paul's judo countermove to this foul, backhanded accusation of antinomianism. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So the legalist comes along and accuses the true preaching of the gospel as nullifying obedience to God. And Paul says the legalist nullifies grace in Christ. Basically, you say that I empty the law of all meaning. I say you empty Christ of all meaning. If righteousness could come through the law, then Christ is obsolete. He's unnecessary. But the apostolic gospel declares with Peter in Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved, and that includes your own name. When our Lord cried out in the garden, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. There was no reply. Because there was no other way. It was not possible. 
Do you not know if there was some lesser way? Some less costly way that the Father would not expend His most precious and beloved Son. The Father is not so reckless as to throw away a Benjamin, not asking any change for what would only cost Him a nickel. The Son was broken for our law-breaking because there was no other way. Our salvation could not be purchased at a bargain price. If sinful men were to stand just before the holy judge of heaven, God must so love that He gives His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have eternal life, a life in Christ lived unto God. When the legalist perverts the gospel by adding works, he infinitely subtracts more than he contributes. Add a little work of your own and you lose the fullness of Christ's work. Calvin comments, If we could produce a righteousness of our own, then Christ has suffered in vain. For the intention of His sufferings was to procure it for us. And what need was there that a work which we could accomplish for ourselves should be obtained from another? If the death of Christ be our redemption, then we were captives. If it be satisfaction, we were debtors. If it be atonement, we were guilty. If it be cleansing, we were unclean. On the contrary, he who ascribes to works... His sanctification, pardon, atonement, righteousness, or deliverance makes void the death of Christ. The legalist says, do. The true antinomian says, don't. The gospel says, done. And because He has done, we have died, and we've risen, and we live. We live unto God. We live unto God by faith. Faith in grace. Grace that is immeasurable, infinite, and eternal. Grace that is ours in Christ. In Christ alone. In the Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. And because that is so, may God grant grace this morning 
that we sinners cling to this Christ and live in Him unto God. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for this inexhaustible treasury of Christ. And may this precious truth of the gospel cause us to cling tightly to him. That we might live unto you. And that this Christ. Would be magnified in us. Thank you. In Jesus name. Amen.